Welcome everyone to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies with an amazing rotating cast of co-hosts. Uh, I'm 40 Miles of Rough Road, Steve Guntley. Uh, my guest today wandered in out of the desert uh, after four years in the heat. Uh, we're very excited to have him, the host of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. It's uh, Doug McCambridge. Hi, Doug. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Also, quite dehydrated. Uh, oh, I can I, imagine. But you I passed up chips? all the cold beer. I mean, you know, oh. on any other day, I would have grabbed it and been a horribly abusive <laughs> husband slash father. But I really need water right now. Uh, we'll just have some ice chips. Uh, try not to scuff up the floor when you land. Right, I'd appreciate great. it. Uh, today we are talking about the movie Paris, Texas. This was released November 2nd, 1984, directed by Vim Vendors and starring Harry Dean Stanton, Natasha Kinski, Dean Stockwell, Aurora Clement, and Hunter Carson. Uh, a very interesting movie to talk about. So Kind of piggybacking off of last week's episode, I was talking to uh, my guests, who you might know, the two hosts of Film Shake, uh, uh, Nick and Jordan. They were on, uh, and they, uh, when I mentioned that this was the next game or the next movie coming up, they both mentioned that this was the best movie of the 80s. Mm. Now, you run a podcast that delves very heavily <laughs> into the 80s, very, very deeply, deeper than most podcasts go into the 80s. Uh, how do we, how would this, how would you, how would you feel about that statement? I don't know. How does that wow. come out for you? How does um, that hit? I, boy, I, I'm not really sure if I agree with that. I would say it's probably top five for me, honestly. I mean, I, I yeah. used to sit down with some sort of spreadsheet of every film in the eighties. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's fantastic. Yes. And this yeah. is not the type of film that we talked about on our podcast. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I once told people, I was like, hey, if you want us to do my dinner with Andre, we'll do it. I don't yeah. know how that would work on my podcast, but no, this is an amazing film. And yeah. I think those two guys might be right on. It's one of those movies that not a lot of people have heard of it, I know. but the people who've seen it will never forget it. Yeah. It's, it's got that, like, I saw this for the first time maybe, God, 10, 15 years ago, and I haven't revisited it until this week, but okay. I remembered it with perfect clarity. Like, this movie really sticks with you. Yeah. Uh, there's just something so haunting and amazing about it. And like I said, it's not one, you know, uh, th this came out in 1984, which is one of the... Uh, most prolific and best mm -hmm. years in film history. So it got kind of overlooked. This didn't even get an Oscar nomination in any technical categories or anything. I was Oscar. shocked by that. Yeah I, yeah. I I just had to go back through and look, and I assume there would be something, whether it's cinematography at, at the something. very least. I, I was shocked. Cooter, was yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. Uh, and, but like I said, the people who saw it mm -hmm. really stick with it and really champion it. Roger Reaper was definitely one of those. You know, he's called this movie. He said this movie has maybe the greatest monologue in film history. He's mm -hmm. made that claim, uh, uh, which I think you can definitely make that argument. It's got some of the best cinematography, some of the best music, some of the best child acting, some of the best old man acting. Like there's there's <laughs> it's really a remarkable film uh, and it's actually more accessible than you might think. I found it streaming on HBO Max right now. Mm -hmm. So if you have that service, which a lot of people do, it's there. You can watch it. Uh yeah, and I, I would recommend tracking it down. Yeah, I would suggest that people do that. I mean, if they're if they're just listening to this and and whatever, they haven't seen some of the movies and they just want to get a taste for it, that's fine. And there's no big twist or whatever, but I would recommend people just pause the show and just find this and watch it. I, I think it's yeah. much better than listening to us talk about it and then 
taking some time to watch it. Some movies that might be better for not this one. Absolutely. And, you know, people might be put off by the length of the movie. This is like a little over two and a half hours. Yeah. It's a lengthy movie. But this is not a slow movie. To me. Well, maybe it's slow, but it's not boring. It's not a boring movie at all. It's it's paced exactly the way yes. you want it to be. There's no, like, if you think back on it, there's nothing I would have cut. You know, like there's nothing you'd want to take away from this. No. Like I like that it takes its time. It's not the type of movie that you would refer to as breezy, but at no, no. point was I bored or checking my watch or anything. I mean, everything felt necessary. Everything felt deliberate. And mm -hmm. at no point did this feel like something that was over two and a half hours. It, it, no. Listen, I'm watching a Marvel movie. I'm checking my watch 15 minutes in. I'm like, sure. oh, God, I can't take this anymore. This does not feel like that. Yeah, and I think maybe it's just that air of mystery that it has sure. around it, especially in the first half where you really mm -hmm. don't know what the situation is, and like it, it, it hooks you. And by the time the story starts revealing itself in the second half of the movie, you're in, you're invested. Yes. You know, it's it's really brilliantly paced. A lot of that goes back to the director, Vim Vendors. I want to talk about him a little bit. Uh, full name Ernst Wilhelm Wenders. Uh, Vim is the Dutch abbreviation of the word Wilhelm. I did not realize. Good choice. He is, Good choice for him to uh, dump that. You know, I to love, change his name a little bit there. That's such a. I don't know. It's such a wonderful, like uh, uh, alliterative yeah. sort of name. Like you know, he'd be a, a German superhero or something. You know, it's. I don't know. I really like it. But he is one of the preeminent uh, filmmakers of the new German class you know the 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 new way the german new wave to for lack of a better word uh he's often spoken of in the same breath as herzog and fassbender and guys like that uh, this is the first of two times we're going to be talking about him on this show i suspect if uh ebert had lived a little longer we'd get a few more i think uh, this is a filmmaker that he really mm -hmm. cherished um so i think we would have seen like kings of the road or buena vista social club or something like that yeah this oh definitely social club yeah. 100%. So Venders was born in Dusseldorf in 1945. He was the son of a prominent surgeon, and he was actually on his way to a career in medicine himself when he decided to change career paths and pursue his obsession, which was film. So he applied to a film school in France and did not get in. So he took a job doing like a kind of set decoration on a film set in Paris and just kind of learning the craft from the ground up. He eventually did get into a, a film school, which he attended at night, just kind of learning the mechanics of it. And he started cranking out a couple of short films, which started gaining attention uh, in the kind of art house film scene. His first film was in uh, 1970s Summer in the City, which is a 16 millimeter black and white film. Uh, and that was kind of like a, an early breakthrough for him and started getting him more and more films. I think his big breakthrough was 1976's Kings of the Road, which was a critically acclaimed road movie that uh, drew some prizes for him at uh, the Cannes Film Festival. And he started getting offers to work in America as well. He followed it up in 1977 with The American Friend, which I did not realize was part of the Ripley series. Yes. Uh, like The Incredible Mr. Ripley, Ripley's Game, uh, yes. based on Patricia Highsmith's novels starring Dennis Hopper in, uh, instead of, you know, who played him again? Matt Damon. Yeah, it was Matt, Matt Damon. Damon and yeah. uh, John Malkovich. It's so, really yeah. great. If you if you ever get a chance to check it out, it's it's amazing. And I I I saw it probably for the first time five years ago. Didn't oh, really? know what to expect. Had no idea it was part of that series. Even when I started watching it, I didn't know. Yeah. It's it has such a vendor's tone to it, which is kind of strange, and you don't know how that would fit with the other sort of Ripley things that you've seen. Uh, but it works brilliantly. Yeah. 
How how would you kind of describe the vendor's tone? He's got a very distinctive style. Like I feel like he's a much more optimistic filmmaker than some of his other peers in the German sure. new wave. Um, yeah, this is such a strange movie, and I don't want to jump right into the movie. I know we have more to get through, but oh but yeah, this is no. this is like the most foreigner's bizarre love letter to America that I've ever yeah. seen. And, and, and again, if you think about America in the eighties, sh- I'm sure there were some good things, but if you're here, you're right in the middle of that Reagan era. And mm-hmm. I think depending on who you are, you may have different feelings about that. But what I really appreciate and what he did is if you take a step back from that, from politics and all that, and you just look around, like I understand the fascination with the American West and yeah. it looks gorgeous. And it, and, oh, yeah. and at every turn, it's just like, this is what he thinks America is, I guess. And boy, I really want to be here. Like, I want to live there. I want to be with these characters. I know there are depressing themes. Yeah. But like you said, it, it feels upbeat. It feels optimistic, even though sometimes characters are talking to each other about the most depressing and horrible things. And never it never drags on you as a, as a viewer. Right. It's it's a similar thing to the movie Wings of Desire, which is yeah. another episode we'll have on this show, which is it has a lot of the hallmarks of kind of like a bleak German art film. But it's also uh, it's got this this underpinnings of hope mm-hmm. that I think Herzog, especially in his early movies, did not go for. Right. Uh, he kind of went for a little bit more dire and bleak. And, yeah. You know. So that it's it's an interesting thing, like, and I I think that's a really good point. Like, like the year this was made really makes this movie stand out because we're you know going in the second uh, Reagan uh, uh, administration, and it is the peak of '80s excess, so the greed yes. is good kind of era of the '80s, and this feels so pared back and provincial in a lot of ways that mm-hmm. it's really uh, it, it's a really striking contrast. Like this could have been made. A decade earlier, two decades earlier, you know. Oh, definitely. Right yeah, there's home. so much of this that just feels like a 70s film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, this this movie is probably Vendor's biggest breakthrough. I would say he had a really good run in the 80s, starting with The State of Things in 1982. Uh, when this came out in 1984, it unanimously won the Palme d'Or at the mm-hmm. Cannes Film Festival, which is the highest prize you can get. Uh, and then, of course, it was snubbed at the Oscars, even though it made a lot of critics' top ten lists, and it's it was kind of generally right. appreciated as a masterpiece. Uh, like I said, his next narrative film was Wings of Desire in 1987, which we will talk about in a later episode. Uh, jumping ahead to 1997, and Vendors won his only Oscar to date uh, for Best Documentary Feature for The Buena Vista Social Club. A really great movie about like a, a, a Cuban band uh, that spawned a surprise like top 10 soundtrack. Like, yeah. yeah that right. was, there was a while where the Buenos Vista social club was on the radio, like on pop radio. It was pretty yeah, cool. It was huge. I remember my mom bought the album. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, what, yeah, what are yeah. you doing? I mean, have, and she hadn't even seen the movie. It was just, she loved the music. I think it I took her like 10 years later to see the movie. Like this wasn't like a huge, huge movie, but the soundtrack was really mm-hmm. big for whatever reason. Uh, and Vendors has been one of those guys who's worked steadily pretty much his entire yeah. career. He's still working a lot now. Uh, he does mostly documentaries these days, but he is very good at that. Yeah. He's also directed uh, music videos for like U2, uh, and he's a really accomplished uh, art photographer as well. He's had several exhibits in museums like for the last 40 years. Uh, 
And by all by all accounts, just kind of a nice, quiet guy who lives uh-huh. a simple life in Germany. He's been married to the same woman for like thirty years at this point. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, uh, good on him. I hope he keeps working. I'd like to see another kind of big breakthrough from him. I admit I haven't seen any of his modern films since Buena Vista, but um, I don't know that they get too much of a release here anymore. Yeah, I'm not sure that I have either. I don't have his filmography in front of me, but uh, yeah. I feel like if I did, it might be bad to say, but I guess they didn't make much of an impact. Yeah, and that's that's what I understand from yeah. most of his latter work, but you know, not a knock on him. Sure. Um, one of the other key figures we really need to talk about in this movie is Sam Shepard, who is mm-hmm. the great American playwright and actor who co-wrote this movie alongside another weird and interesting figure, L.M. Kit Carson. <laughs> uh, so uh, Sam Shepard, of course, he at this point was kind of on the hottest streak of his career. He won Tonys for um, uh, True West and... Mm-hmm. Uh, he was nominated for an Oscar for the right stuff as a supporting actor, you know. So he was kind of in the limelight. Him being attached to this movie was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Uh, and he worked collaborated with Alan Kit Carson, who had a very weird career in his own right. He kind of he he gradually worked his way up as a, a screenwriter. Uh, he did the remake of uh, Godard's Breathless with Richard mm-hmm. Gere uh, that I haven't seen, but it's not uh, it's not worth watching. Prob- probably not worth that. watching. <laughs> Then he hit it big with this movie. And do you know the movie he wrote right after this movie? No, what was it? Texas Chainsaw Massacre yes. 2. <laughs> yes, which is I a sh- which is a movie that. I imagine you, have you done that on Good Times Great Movies no. or will you do that? Cuz that movie's bad shit. Yeah, that's it, that's a crazy movie. That's a movie that I personally do not like, but when I don't people either, say when people say it's their favorite, I kind of get it. Like there are some people that love that movie and it has it doesn't make any sense in, in oh, any part so of the rest of the series. Gross. Like, yeah. And like, and Dennis Hopper is just <laughs> munching on the scenery. Yes. You couldn't imagine a more uh, opposite movie to Paris, Texas. Right. Than Texas Chainsaw <laughs> right. Massacre right. 2 while still taking place in Texas. And and uh, you, you would, you would get that from like a working film writer, you know, someone yeah. that has like 30, 40, 50 credits, but that's not this guy. No, He's got like no. a handful of writing credits. And it's yeah. just bizarre that these two are even in there. It's so weird. It's so weird. And then most of his movies after that just didn't really get right. much of a release at all, you know? Uh, but it, it was a, it's definitely very interesting. At the time of this movie, he was married to the actress Karen Black from Five Easy Pieces. And their son, Hunter, plays Hunter in this movie. Uh, he'd never acted before. And I have to say, this is a tremendous child performance like it's an amazing this, child performance i mean there's is there not is, a showy role either no like no and there are so many times where this could swing into the worst thing which is precocious child and it never gets there it straddles that line yeah. a couple times there's a couple conversations they have later when they're on their own little road trip and all that where i'm like oh please don't please don't let this become paper moon like i don't yeah i don't want that and it never goes that far with it and they, i love they it tip it there was a moment i highlighted when watching it like he's speaking to uh uh, uh Anne, his his kind of uh honorary mother yeah. is talking about his his mother and he says that's not her that's only her in a movie and then he adds, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right. Like, it was starting to veer that way. It was starting yeah. to be like, oh, okay, this is some, like, insightful philosophical stuff that a child would never say. 
But yeah. then they tack on the Star Wars thing, and it's like, okay, you're bringing it back. And then you watch him playing throughout the movie, and you can tell it's vendors just like, okay, I, I just want you to play like you normally would. Right, exactly. He's acting and like a kid. All, he's like, yes, and it's space stuff. And, and, and yeah, it's like it's all kids Star Wars. that are so into dinosaurs. And you're like, how do you know all these names of dinosaurs, you little weirdo? But kids have that, and kids get so into that. So anytime he does that, it sort of does make sense. And they're plugged in enough to know that a right. seven-year-old in 1983 would be obsessed with Star Wars. So right, they get sure. that. They get that. Yeah, I really like that performance. Um, one of the other big key figures here is one of my very favorite people on Earth, and that's Harry Dean Stanton. So one of my favorite things in the world is when a kind of raggedy character actor who's been around the periphery for a million years finally gets a lead role or gets a yes. really show-stopping role and everybody kind of notices them for the first time. You know, like your J.K. Simmons, your John Hawks, your guys like that. Yep. And this is one of the best examples of that ever. Harry Dean Stanton was 60 at the time of this shooting. Wow. He'd been in 100 films before this. 100 <laughs> That's films. That's crazy. That's nuts. He'd been in everything. You know, I think at this point he was best known for his role in Alien, I would say. Uh, but, I mean, he's been in everything. He's a favorite of David Lynch and, and a million other filmmakers. But he'd never had a lead role before this. And he's only had one other since. That was a 2017 film called Lucky, which sadly proved to be his final film. Uh, he died a little after that at the age of 91. Uh, but he he's one of those who was never bad, so much so that Roger Ebert, in his uh, Roger Ebert's video companion, he had a little glossary of what he called his film rules, and one of them was called the Stanton-Walsh rule, which reads, uh, no movie featuring either Harry Dean Stanton or M. Emmett Walsh in a supporting role can be altogether bad. <laughs> an exception was Chattahoochee in 1990 starring Walsh. Stanton's record is still intact. I don't know when that role was written. There's probably been a bad Harry Dean Stanton movie since there then. There has to be. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not trying to knock the guy, but come on. You, you turn out that many films. You have that many oh, credits yeah. to your name. They can't all be winners, but. I like I, the qualifier. It can't be altogether bad. It altogether, can be bad, there you go. Yes. but usually I will agree that it, even in bad movies, Harry Dean Stanton is like putting in right. work. You yeah, know? it could be it could be garbage, but then you see Harry Dean Stanton and you're like, all right, you know what? I'll give it a half a star in Letterboxd. And like, so. God, Emmett Walsh still kicking, uh, still working. He was just in Knives Out. Like he, the man is still yeah. going. He's got to be in his nineties at this point. <laughs> I, oh, I know. But you're right. <clears throat> Stanton is amazing <clears throat> in this film. It's it's. Oh God. I, I, and and I don't, and I think he's probably still known for Alien. I mean, I yeah. can't imagine anybody, you know, the the common man on the street, let's say, yeah. knows him really from anything but Alien, which he's phenomenal in. Sure, um, maybe Repo Man, maybe Pretty in Pink. You know, he he was he was having that kind of a big yeah, moment around this yeah, time. Yeah, the Drunk Dead and Pretty in Pink. I could see that might be the second thing I think of. That him might in, be, honestly. yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it it's just such a captivating performance, and like a star making performance meaning if he didn't have that many credits to his name and this guy came out of nowhere mm -hmm. i could really see him getting a nomination at least for an academy award for this film that's the crazy thing like you could see uh stanton's career going like a jk yeah. simmons route where he is still a character actor but now he's like an above the title like character actor and that's not really the way it went for him uh he didn't like i said he didn't take on another lead role for like 30 plus years yeah. Uh, because but I think he, he was happy taking the work that he took. You know, he was one of those working right. actors who yeah. just would. And yeah. I think it might have to do with his age, but he, oh, yeah. he's such a different actor than Simmons. I mean, he's 
he kind of gives the same energy level in every performance, regardless yeah. of what character he's playing. You know, he's, he's got not kind of a laconic and, cowboy right. type. Yeah, he's yeah. not going to scream and yell at a kid for playing drums poorly. Like, you know, so I'm not saying he doesn't have range. Sure, he's got range, and and you yeah. can see that. Um, but he's he's a perfect supporting actor. He's a perfect supporting he is. character. He's 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 a perfect character actor, and yeah. this is such an amazing highlight of his right. skills because a lot so much of the action needs to be conveyed on. I mean, for the he doesn't say a word in the movie. I think for the first thirty minutes at oh, least, like I think he doesn't have a single word. Thirty minutes. I think I read where it was like twenty six minutes. He doesn't say anything. Yeah. And, and the the insane amount of dialogue they give to him at the end of this movie. It's it's just such a wonderful turn and evolution for this character that we did not hear anything from at the beginning. How he's yeah. talking nonstop at the end of this movie. And we have to watch him very slowly very gradually kind of rebuild himself yeah so kind of the the we'll jump into the movie here sure. like kind of the core premise of this movie is that there's this man who has been wandering the desert for four years in a kind of fugue state uh he basically abandoned his family and disappeared and nobody knows why he has a very young son who's seven years old who's being raised by his brother played by dean stockwell mm -hmm. Uh, and they get the message that Travis, Harry Dean Stan's character, has wandered out of the desert into this bar and collapsed. Uh, he doesn't speak. Nobody seems to know where he is or where he came from. But they were able to track down his brother in L.A. who flies out to retrieve him. Yes. So we kind of get two little road movies in one in this. The first is when his brother is picking him up and driving him back to L.A., mm -hmm. which has to be its own kind of road adventure because he's too afraid to fly. Right. And the second is when he's uh, uh, Travis is driving back to Texas with his son to try and find his uh, wife and the boy's mother and right. kind of try and rebuild the family. And so we're learning gradually what happened and what sent him on this odyssey. And it doesn't go the way you think it's going to go necessarily. No. And, and I think that's the thing that I was I was first impressed with that when I watched this movie. Now, this is and I, I did. I did take note. This is the third time I've seen this movie. And okay. the first time I saw it, I was a single guy in my 20s. And I was really into, oh, foreign art house films. Let me track sure. down all these titles that I've heard of. And I watched this and I loved it. I enjoyed it. The second time I watched it, I was a married man. It felt like a different movie at that point. And yeah. now when I watched it this time, I'm a married man with children. And it feels completely different then yeah. the second time, then the first time, but in every instance, it's so impactful, even if it is in different ways. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, it, it's, it's a movie of very quiet power. It sneaks mm -hmm. up on you without hitting you on the head with anything. You know, the movie's very content with silence, which is always a choice I appreciate. If not yes. in my podcast, then at least in the movies <laughs> I watch. Uh, and there's a, there's a great sense of emptiness. I think that's that's one of the central metaphors of the movie is looking at these American landscapes as being right. like completely devoid, but also more hospitable to him than civilization. In the early part of the movie, you'll notice that like anytime he's having a conversation with somebody that isn't his brother, it goes poorly. Like yes. the person is kind of hostile or, or right. rude. Like or the doctor's trying to shake him down. The mm -hmm. the car lot lady's just kind of brusque with them. Like it's heightening this sense that 
Travis feels so alienated from everything, right. you know, and and that the only solace he can get is when he's out in those big, wide, empty spaces. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a there's a difference between emptiness and openness too, because oh, yeah. that's that's what I feel. I, I don't feel that empty is a bad thing for this character. I don't think that empty is a bad thing, even in in vendors' eyes. I think it's mm-hmm. more open. It's more freeing yeah. because anytime, like you said, even when. Yeah, the interactions he has early on are very difficult for him and everyone else. But I felt such a sense of claustrophobia, even when he's in his house, even when he's in the house with Dean Stockwell or Walt yeah. and Anne. Like, it felt so confined. It felt so claustrophobic. And I just love the fact that the airport's right there, too. Like, it's, That's it's a such a brilliant decision from you're, everything you've seen up to this point. <laughs> You, you never, whenever you're in Walton Ann's house, you're always hearing planes going overhead. And even though it's like, you know, you look outside, it's like, they've got a very nice view of the Hills. Like it's, it's uh, it's nice and sunny in California, but you're never free of that freeway noise and of that air traffic noise going over the house. So it's just kind of this, this, uh, uh, dissonance that's going through Travis's head the entire time. Yeah. And it's telling him that like this environment isn't very hospitable to him, you know, like it's whatever he is, whoever he is, there's something about this city environment that's right. He's rejecting or is rejecting him. Mm -hmm. So he starts to get a little antsy, but we do watch as he kind of slowly pieces himself together. Now, the very first word out of his mouth when he finally speaks is Paris, uh, which is referring to the title Paris, Texas. This is kind of in the great tradition of Fargo in that it's a movie it's been titled after a place that doesn't really take place in that place. Right. <laughs> um, Fargo at least has one scene. Paris, Texas only has a uh, photograph of a sign in a desert. I want, I want Paris, Texas. Now I want the Vim vendors to go back into the beginning, just write based on true events at the beginning <laughs> of this movie. <laughs> and just, just pull the wool over our eyes. Right. And somebody's going to go out digging for a hidden treasure. It turns out it's just emotional richness and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, Ugh, how yeah. boring. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's it. Paris is kind of a metaphor for Travis in this movie because he sure. bought a little strip of land in Paris, Texas, because he remembers a story his mother told him that that was the first place that she and his father made love, and so he considers that that is the place where he began, and he wanted to give that to his son. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we know. Yeah, we know about Hunter, his son, and. It's also thankfully never a plot point that uh, Walt and Anne have been passing themselves off as his parents or anything like that. There's never, there's never a contrivance like that. Hunter knows exactly who his dad is. He yeah. doesn't know exactly what happened, but he knows his dad exists and left and is coming back. Yeah. Thankfully, there's no weird argument. Well, we're now his legal guardians because we went through the courts. No, there's there's none of that at all. No. And and I love the I love the fact that this kid at one point is like, I got two dads, man. This is great. Like I got yeah. this dad and I got a second dad. Like it's it's really and it does take him a, a while to come around on Travis, his biological father. Right. But it's it seems so sweet and it seems so genuine too. Yeah, and, yeah. And and I know when I've heard people make, you know, comparisons to well, the child has to act like a an adult while the uh while Travis acts like a child for a while. Okay, I get it. I don't want to read too much into that. Sure. But it but it is really sweet how they do finally come together and Travis leaves it up to Hunter. He's like this is your decision whether you want to come with me or not. 
Right. Cause you, you know, he's going to do it regardless. He's going to yeah. go and he's going to try and find Jane, whether his kid is with him or not. I mean, that would have been a, a, a crazy different scenario had oh, the child yeah. not been there, but he really leaves it up to him and he trusts this kid to do what he feels is best. And Hunter grew up kind of to be a, a much more emotionally mature uh, person than either of his parents somehow. You know, I think he, <laughs> yeah, 100%. maybe it's that steady influence of Walt. Like I like the scene where Walt is flying out to uh, pick up Travis. He's on a plane and on his tray table, he's just spinning a top, yeah. which is just a nice visual demonstration of this guy is steady. He is reliable. You can count on him. Right. He, can, he can roll a top on a airplane. <laughs> like, uh, so he has that kind of steadying influence and this isn't a little boy who feels traumatized or anything by his parents leaving. He's infinitely patient and loving. Like, you know, we'll get to it eventually, but the, the, the hug he gives his mother at the end of the film is just so lovely. Yeah. Such a, such a warm, like kind of little boy thing to do, you know, of, of just, I don't know. It, it was a really beautiful moment. Yeah. Uh, uh, although it is yeah. such a, it's such a strange film and I'm not trying to, Fast forward, but you're talking about hugs at the end of this movie. So sure, I think we're yeah. jumping all over the place oh, here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, please jump around. It's, yeah. it's so interesting to think that if Travis had not even shown up, and there's there's reason to believe that Walt probably thought he was dead. You know, if you haven't seen... Oh, I mean, they said this, as much. Yeah, yeah this yeah. crazy alcoholic for four years, you probably assume this guy's dead. I don't think they have any idea where Jane is. So if none of this had happened, you can assume Hunter would have been just fine. He would yeah. have had a great life with these people. And there's part of me now watching it this time that did wonder if this was the right thing to have happen, you know, because we don't know what's going to happen with Jane. We don't know what's going to happen with Travis. I mean, no. you know, and, and it's, it's odd because clearly Travis had a horrible upbringing, you yeah. know, with both of his parents and, and how, abusive and terrible that relationship was. And it just seems odd that his goal is to be like, well, my child needs to know whose biological parents are, even if we're not great people. And there's still part of me, even, even at the end when I'm like, what a great ending that goes, is this going to really screw this kid up? Like, was you this have the to worry. best thing to happen? Yeah. Yeah. You think about that too, because that that big symbolic gesture at the end of Travis <gasps> reuniting his his son with his mother mm -hmm. and then removing himself from the situation. I think he recognizes that he's he's too far gone. He's done too much damage. He needs sure. to step away. And that's kind of the noblest sacrifice he can make. And it's the way he can atone for for leaving in the first place. But he's also still leaving some tatters behind because yeah. He took this little boy from his brother and sister-in-law. They loved this little boy. He was he was a major part of their life for four years, and they just took him without saying goodbye. And there was an original version mm. of the script uh, where Walt and Anne are on the road trip with them. Mm. And then gradually, as they go along, first Anne leaves, uh, and then uh, Walt leaves. And Walt wanders off into the desert and it's implied that he's going to kind of follow the same lost path that Travis was in the beginning. Oh, and that's so horrible. I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah. Because I like to think, oh, Jane's going to take him back to Walton Inn and the three of them are going to raise this kid together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You would hope, you know, and um, yeah. and I think, yeah, that version of the script would have hit that a little bit too hard, maybe. Yeah, um, definitely. But it does feel a little cruel, especially because... Anne in particular is so kind to him. Like 
Yeah, goes I mean, out could, of his way, goes out of her way to really make him uh, feel like he's still part of the family, yeah. and that, and that he can take time to heal there. Mm-hmm. And you can tell in that phone conversation in her kitchen when she's getting all the news that that he's gone and he's taken his kid, she's really hurt by this. You know, yeah. she even has a she even has a conversation with Walt, and, and she's like, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. Like, this is probably a mistake here. Yeah. So, and we also learn, you know, about. Jane's situation and her work Mm -hmm. and her life in Houston. And you also have to wonder if that's the stablest environment for him to be in. I don't know. She doesn't seem to be in as desperate a situation as some of the other girls in the club with her. Right. Like if you contrast, I guess that's kind of the jump ahead. We, we learn that Jane has been working in this kind of peep show, uh, as a, as a stripper, as kind of a, it, it's not really clear that she's a prostitute. Uh, right. I don't think she is, but I think some of the girls that work there are. Um, and so she's kind of working there in Houston where she just sort of enacts these fantasies for people in this, yes. in this little bubble, you know? Um, and so you do have to wonder, like, is she in a place where she'd want to be taking on this extra responsibility and like all the reasons that she had for leaving in the first place are still present so I don't know. There's a there's an interesting question to ask about the ending there. It, it's it's something that's kind of interesting because it's almost as though Travis needed his son to get him out of the funk that he was in. Mm-hmm. But then he's so self aware to understand I I would be a huge burden on this kid. You know, my job is to reconnect this child with his mother. Then I guess he's assuming that the child's going to be enough to get the mother out of her funk or out of this line of work or get her life on track. And yeah, and it's so bizarre that he understands. He, he sort of understands finally at the end of this movie. And I think this is the, the turn that we've been waiting for the whole time that yeah. he is to blame. And, and you yeah. don't know how much of in his mind, this is Jane's fault. Everything is Jane's fault, blah, 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 so on and so forth. But when he's talking to her for the last time, he admits outright, I did this. I was to blame. It's my fault. So then he's removing himself from that scenario and good on him. But I don't, I, I just, I'm very afraid for Jane in this film. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a scary situation. Uh, the, the whole sequence that is set at the club in, in those, those peep mm-hmm. rooms where they're separated by the double-sided glass, uh, are really an incredible one. It's a very long scene, like a very long scene, oh. two, two very long scenes kind of strung together. Where it's amazing though. It's, it's, it's so beautifully the shot. Best scenes of this film. If you just watch these clips on YouTube, anyone would be enthralled and want to watch the rest of the film. I mean, so you have Natasha Kinski who we haven't really talked about. Like she no. is uh, a, a German actress. She's the daughter of Klaus Kinski, who is the famously temperamental, uh, let's just say batshit crazy uh, German <laughs> actor. Uh, if you watch uh, My Best Fiend, the uh, Herzog documentary about him, you could see a little bit of what that guy was like. But Natasha was uh, an up and coming actress, uh, kind of a kind of a bombshell type in the early '80s as well. Uh, this was probably her most substantial acting role at the time. I think maybe Tess before that. But she was kind of up and coming. Um, yeah, I think I think Tess was something where people started to take notice of her. Yeah. Um, but this, I assume this is where she really blew up. And I assume this is where, you know, this is what led to Cat People. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm Oh, I think Cat People much. was before this. Was Wait, Cat People before Cat this? Cat People might have been before this, yeah. Uh, it might have been 80, 
82, I want to say. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, that could be. So, yeah, this, uh, either way, this is kind of her at the peak of her powers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you can you can poke some holes in her accent work, I think. Uh, there, there's sure. The, the accent's a little spotty, but I think this is a really accomplished performance because, you know, as we said, uh, Ebert considered this monologue that Stanton is giving towards the end of the film as one of the greatest in American history. And so much of this is just a tight shot on her face, a very, very long tight shot on her face. And we have to watch her reacting to this story as it unfolds. And maintain our interest and maintain like and she's she's magnetic in that way uh yes. and really interesting to watch you know and just the the framing of this scene is so beautiful the way he has to turn his chair around even though she can't see him because he doesn't want to have to look at himself mm. the great shot where she finally turns the light off so that they can see each other and his face is reflected on her body and yep. they're, they're of a soul the detail of like flipping around and seeing the inside of her room and seeing that the walls yes. are unfinished. So it looks industrial and, and, and cold despite like the warm coffee shop environment that she's in. Mm -hmm. Everything about this scene is just so yeah. fucking good. It's um, so, I mean, it's, I cannot. And you, you mentioned it, just the idea of the way to see someone else is to turn off the light on yourself. Like it's, it's yeah. so smart. It's, it's it's brilliant. It's lit amazing. And like you said, when we get that reverse shot from inside of her little area there, and yeah. you just see that there's like unfinished walls and drywall sitting there, it's it's so shocking because she looks beautiful. The surroundings are amazing. Whatever pink tiny sweater they have her in, it looks oh, I, it looks the, so fantastic. And just to switch that and be like, no, this is trash town that she's living in right now. This yeah. is a horrible life. This shouldn't, nobody should be doing this. It's kind of an interesting reflection with the costume too. She's wearing yeah. all these backless dresses and then there's like, you know, cause she's exposed on the back and so is yep. the walls, you know? So yeah. interesting way of her like reflecting her environment. Um, and, and, you know, apparently Harry Dean Stanton was a little reluctant to take this part because he was concerned about the age gap. He's oh, 34 oh. years older than Natasha Kinski and he, he didn't want, to seem like a creepo. He didn't want that to be distracting, but you can, you can understand why it works here because you, you see the, the picture you've gotten of Travis as it's emerged is this deeply poetic, tragic soul. Yes. Who he's, he's inherited his father's disease. You know, he's, he's kind of become mm -hmm. this, this, uh, this animal that he never thought he would become, never wanted right. to become, and so he's spending all this, he's going to such extreme measures to atone for it. And you can and, see how she would be drawn to something like that. Yeah. And the other thing is so much of this is left unexplained and that's great. I don't need to know her background. I don't need no. to know where she came from. She could have been an immigrant. Hence yeah. not bad, you know, not yeah, great yeah. accent work, let's say, you know, and, and he might've seemed like a father figure to her, but that's crap. We don't need, I mean, I know no. enough people in my real life where it's like, that's a weird age gap and people that get into terrible relationships with people. I mean, we know these people, they're all around us. Yeah. So to get hung up on that, that has no place in this film whatsoever it has no place, no. you know, entering the mind of the viewer also because strangely, they're never 
together. I mean, there's something about that where it doesn't seem creepy. They're never embracing. They're not making out. Like they're never turning off the light and sex is implied. So right outside of like the, the family helps. video. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like outside of the, the video right, of them like right. playing oh, at yeah, the beach. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the most you get of their actual like physical intimacy. Exactly. So it's not it. Yeah, I agree. It's not like. But that even as the distracting that just but, feels like a movie anyway. I mean that that yeah. feels like that feels like people that have a horrible life pretending to be okay for the camera. Right. Yeah. You see yeah, it in exactly. every photo that's on Facebook. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Goddamn. Just what a beautiful, rich. Yeah satisfying movie it works on so many levels it's just so i don't know yeah i'm i'm it, it's so robust in everything it's trying to say and how accomplished it is and and just yeah again it's a longer movie mm-hmm. but there's not a single moment wasted here you're not going to feel like you're wasting your time you're not going to feel like you're looking at your watch because you want to see how this unfolds and the fact that it doesn't un, it doesn't resolve in any kind of big reveal you know he wasn't like whacked on the head in a car accident and and spent the years wandering through the desert like there aren't really easy answers to these mysteries you put forward and some of the answers that you do get just kind of raise further questions about what kind of world this movie is presenting you know yeah Um, movies movies tend to end with a relatively satisfying conclusion yeah but this is telling stories of real people and all of their stories will continue. I mean, Travis, who knows what his story is? Maybe he realizes there's no turning back. We do seem to get drunk near the end of this movie. And I kind of yeah. thought that's a turning point for him. Now I thought he was on the straight and narrow and maybe he even went into this with the thought of Jane and I will get back together. We got our kid, but he gets hammered and probably realizes now that's it. This is my life. Who knows? He might wander off into the desert at the end. Walt and Anne, like, I love the fact that we don't see them anymore because they're part of this story's done. Like they, they yeah, may it come is. back later. They may have another story later, but, but they're finished. It's now Travis and his kid. And at the yeah. end of this, it's Anne and it's her kid. And now it's their story. That's going to continue on. We yeah. don't need a satisfying conclusion with everybody embracing at the end and talking about who's going to enroll them in what school district now. Exactly. No, that's that's not the point of it. And even as you're getting that kind of beatific moment of of Travis watching from the roof of the parking garage right. and then setting off into the into the sunset in his car, like it's a bittersweet moment, and you you do get a sense that he's kind of uh, uh, cleansed his his demons a little bit. But there's no sense that there's no there's no guarantee that it's not coming back because we've seen him drinking again right we know he's freed himself from this situation he's ended this situation in a way that can lighten his soul and can put yeah. people on the right path and and uh, uh go towards rebuilding something that was lost yeah but, there's, there's, but there's he's a free this... agent now he's 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 yes. in the wind and we don't know where he's gonna end up it could just be back out in the desert again right and yeah. and there are times in this movie where we do like to think that he has changed and that he's found himself and that he's a better person. Mm -hmm. But I think he feels that he has done right by his child and his ex-wife. Yeah. But I think in the end, he's probably still that same selfish, abusive drunk. Who's just like, I'm out of here. Like maybe he's self-aware enough to go. They don't need me. Or maybe he's, it doesn't want anything to do with them. And that sounds terrible, but Maybe it's a mix of both. I I don't know, but we shouldn't know if we're watching this movie. Yeah, but we know his path keeps going. You know, right. every, everyone's path keeps going, and everyone is 
they may not find what they're looking for, but they're going to find something. And exactly. It's, it's just so beautifully done. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely love this movie. Again, on HBO Max right now, yeah. it's the it's the Criterion print. It's beautifully restored. Gorgeous. We didn't even really mention Ry Cooter and his music here, but like, fuck, it's so good. Like, just really yeah. spare kind of slide guitar music. Mm-hmm. There's a really great scene where uh, Travis is telling his son all about his own father and the way that he would get paranoid and angry. Right. And instead of an actual song, what we're hearing is Ry Cooter tuning his guitar. Uh, which is wow, such a strange, I didn't even unusual, pick up on that. That's amazing. <laughs> it's it's this uh, dissonant noise, like just to kind of show that all right, this this is what might have like warped him. This is this is the root of all of his problems, and it's causing a dissonance in him and in us to be thinking about it. Yeah, you know, so huh. real, uh, really expressive and beautiful. Um, and yeah, uh-huh. uh, do you, do you have anything uh, final to say about Paris, no, Texas? I, I just want to say it's. What this movie does with color is another amazing thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, this movie is, we talked earlier, this movie is red, white, and blue all over the place. Oh, yeah, Any, yeah. Anytime you're outside, anytime you're in an opening, open environment, and it starts at the beginning with that white shirt that he's wearing with his red hat and the big blue sky behind him. Yeah. It is so USA, USA. Even at the house, there's one point where we're outside and you see the shoes lined up and there's red, white, and blue shoes yeah, just lined yeah. up in a row. But then what Vendors does is there are a lot of times in this movie where there's either conflict or a transition. And you see it at the end. You see it when Anne's on the phone. And it's just bathed in this green. It it looks mm-hmm. so sickly and so different and, and so just unnatural the way the rest of this movie does not appear. Oh, yeah. Like when he's going through the hallway of the sex club, you know, for yes. the first time, and it's just bathed in this yeah. really expressionistic he, light. But then when he gets in there, he's in blue and she's in red and yeah. white. It's 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 so interesting what he does with color. And it's nothing I picked up on the first time I watched it, the second time I watched it. But when I watched it this time, I was so invested in how this movie looks. It's yeah. absolutely gorgeous. It really is. It really is. So worth tracking down. Yeah. I hope uh, anyone listening to this would go to the trouble yeah. to track it down and uh, uh, see this movie. One of the one of the great kind of forgotten gems of the 1980s. Yeah. A really beautiful movie. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for being here for this one. Uh, th- this is uh, it was really fun to revisit this movie and uh, and chat about it with you. Uh, where can people find your amazing thank podcast? You all me. your stuff. Oh, uh, it's uh, the podcast is Good Times, Great Movies. Uh, it's an 80s movie podcast. Um, but if you are looking for thoughtful, insightful conversation like this, maybe don't go to that podcast because it's just my <laughs> not, co-host and I taking the piss out of movies from the 80s. Which is great. Which is yeah, great. sure. Sometimes I wish I was covering worse movies so I can take the piss <laughs> out of shit. But, you know, it's like pretty much all of these are going to be at least like good. You know, I don't think there's yeah, going to be yeah, any movies would, on this list that I hate. You would assume. I, I haven't looked over the entire list. Honestly, um... Much like you are, I'm going to say, possibly a uh, Nintendo 64 completionist. Yeah, uh, yeah. I am a Criterion completionist. Excellent. In that oh I have God. every spine number one through 1,000. So I think you're I went through your spreadsheet. kidding me. That's yeah. insane. I think I went through your spreadsheet and signed up for all the Criterion titles that someone else hadn't already signed up for. So <laughs> uh, people will hear me again, I guess. I hope so. I hope so. We're excited to have you back. Uh, so we are Rogers List Pod uh, on Twitter and Instagram and all the different places like that. 
Uh, so you can find us there. Uh, be sure to tune in next week because we're staying in the American South, but we're going a little farther north because we are going to be talking about Nashville, one of my very favorite films of all time, Robert Altman's Nashville. Uh, I'm really excited to get into that one. Uh, so yeah, stick around. Uh, we're, we're in a in a chain of southern uh, movies here for some reason. Uh, so I'm gonna go so with it. Drowning in Americana here. <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you so much again for being here, and we will see you all. In the-